everyone! Before we start, I wanted to let you know, if you would like to watch our whole service, head to our website, that's dc2.me, and from the media drop-down, click Sermons. You can watch our whole service there. And now, here's this week's sermon. Hey, good morning, Discovery. Good morning. That's pretty good. Yeah, good Good to see you. All right, wasn't sure. Okay. Um, uh, my name's Rob. I... Um, come to church here, my family and I, and every once in a while they say I don't have to sit in one of those seats, I can stand up here. So um, I always appreciate that opportunity. And we're, we're closing out our study in the book of Malachi, and uh, we're in chapter three. And I noticed that Zach, how he did it, Jake had week one, and I have week three. And if we were an Oreo cookie, Zach gave himself the best part, right, in the middle, right? Uh, so... Um, but, but really looking forward to doing this. And I, and I wanted to start this way. Uh, Romans 15, 13, Paul says this. He says, I pray that God, the source of hope, will fill you completely with joy and peace because you trust in him. Then you will overflow with confident hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. And I think as I've read through Malachi as I've interacted with Zach, I, I really think that this is, is what we hope are the takeaway, and maybe it's not something immediate, we'll talk about that, but just that you are, are filled, you are overflowing with the confident hope that the Holy Spirit will take your experiences and, and some of the things that, that you've learned in this series and, and work all of that in so that there's greater hope within you that will help shape your life. But before we talk, get too hopeful, uh, I'll ask this question. Uh, no one get really upset, don't sit there and stew, but think about a time maybe you were hurt or offended, all right? Again, I'm not trying to bum you out, don't hold this against me, but I want you to think about that uh, a little bit. And my guess is, I know it's true for me, that the hurt or the offense came because whatever it was, it felt really personal. Maybe there was an expectation that went unmet, Maybe you felt misunderstood or, or what was really important to you didn't seem to even be considered. And, and I asked that question because I think at the time that, that Malachi was written, there were all of these old prophecies. And I have to wonder if, if the people who were engaging at that time, what Malachi was talking about, I wonder if all those old prophecies had not become hurtful or maybe even offensive because it seemed like there were all these things that were promised, all these things that were said, and yet they were not happening. And so maybe instead of overflowing with hope, the people, the Israelites of that day were occupied with doubt and hurt. And I think we see see that in their words. I mean, think about the Israelites. They had returned from exile, right? And these prophets, these prophets of God had encouraged them. They said, man, rebuild the temple that had been destroyed. And they were promised that God's, God's blessing in that and that the temple that was going to be rebuilt would be greater than the former temple, that God himself would return in mercy, that entire nations would turn to the Lord and become his people, that, that there would be a new day of peace and prosperity. But 80 years had passed, 80 long years. The temple was rebuilt, but it really wasn't anywhere near as good as the previous temple. God had given them all these glowing promises through the prophets, but 
at that point, they just, I wonder if they came across almost like mockery. I mean, the economy was tanked. The land wasn't fruitful. There was drought. There was pestilence. Crops were failing. And instead of nations flowing, instead of them being um, kind of Jerusalem being the center point, right? The nations were actually in control of Israel. God didn't seem to be present. Satan's work certainly didn't seem to be being destroyed. And instead of the spiritual vitality that they were counting on, everything seemed to be dead. Nothing that was promised seemed to be coming true. And so there was every reason, I think, for them to be discouraged. And it's in the middle of this hopelessness that Malachi says, hey, but the day is coming. The day is coming that things will finally be settled and settled perfectly. And, and I share that because if, if we're not careful, right, we can, we can put ourselves in all kinds of different places, but, but can't we identify with what the Israelites are thinking and experiencing? Have you not had times in your life where you've run out of patience? Has there not been those days or maybe those weeks or maybe those years where you really do doubt God's goodness? You're not sure of his plan. And we certainly know moments of despair. Most of us know at least different times, seasons of despair. And so I think we should pay special attention because that's our reality of how God interacts with the people that are experiencing the same thing. As Zach pointed out last week, their big question was, well, where's justice? I mean, where's justice? And, and God's response was, well, I'm coming, and when I come, justice comes too. And to quote Zach, he said, listen, when it comes to God's kind of justice, fundamentally, fundamentally, it means restoring what is right, not punishing that which is wrong. And I think that's the very thing, that reality is the very thing that can break through our hurt and our offense and despair and land us in a place of hope. See, God's invitation, again, is Zach, I'm basically just quoting Zach the whole message, it's good. Uh, God's invitation is, is to become who we are, right? To embrace the reality that here's the crazy thing, and I, man, I want you to know this so much, that you are fully known by God. Your mistakes, your mess-ups, your offenses, your sin, your shame, all of that stuff. And yet you are fully accepted and loved. Think about that. See, I think to the degree that we believe this is to the degree that we're able to function to stand on hope. And it's a stance of hope that shapes our lives toward being who we really are. And I would go so far as to say that it's a lack of hope, that that's the number one reason that we struggle at times to be who God created us to be. It's a lack of hope. So here we are toward the, or the end of, of Malachi. And it's written to, I believe, embed, right? Embed an overflow of confident hope in the reader. And this word hope is interesting. It, it comes up about 80 times or so in the New Testament. And in our Bibles, what most of us has always read, it's always translated into the English word hope, which implies uncertainty, 
right? Whenever we use that word, it's, it's uncertainty. So like some of you are saying, man, I hope Rob doesn't preach for an hour. And there's some uncertainty there. You just don't know. Okay, it could happen, right? So it carries this idea of uncertainty, but that's almost completely different than the biblical definition of hope. Look at Hebrews 11.1. 1. It says, now faith is the confidence in what we hope in what we hope for and what? You can say it. Wow, you said it like you don't even believe it. And, and what? That's a little better. About what we do not see. Listen, hope is a life-shaping certainty of something that hasn't happened yet, but you know it will. I mean, you know it's going to happen. It's hope, and, and of all the things that make life worth living, the number one thing is hope, right? Hope's what makes life worth living. And here's the thing. It's crazy to think about, but it's not our circumstances, okay? Check this out. It's not our circumstances that truly affect the way we live, but it's our believed-in future. It's always our believed-in future that impacts, that affects the way we live, not our current circumstances, See, your believed-in future completely determines how you process, how you respond, how you deal with, how you interact with the circumstances of the here and now. I mean, think about it this way. You've read stories, you've seen movies, you're aware of different history, and you've got like soldiers, right, that are in battle, and they're being overwhelmed by the enemy. Defeat is inevitable. But then in the distance, there's the sound or the music of a marching army, army that's, that's coming into the fray. And, and, and through the, the liberating army, right, that's coming, they're not there yet. They're not on the field of battle. They're not engaged yet. They're still in the forest. They're still on the other side of the hill. But you know enforcements are coming, and those enforcements that are coming, they absolutely guarantee victory. Are they there? Nope. Are they engaged in battle? Not yet. But because you know they are coming, because you know victory is assured, your whole being is stronger. Your heart's braver, your mind's sharper and more focused. The anticipation, the knowledge of what's about to happen, though it hasn't happened yet, changes the reality for you in that very moment. And why? Because you're connecting your present reality to the future. It's such a powerful thing. I think we underestimate how much our believed in future determines how we live now, right? We're, we're ultimately and unavoidably shaped by our believed in future. What we believe about our future is the main determination of how we're going to process good news and bad days and, and how we experience all of our present realities. Okay, think about this. You have two people. Same terrible, horrible job. Same thing. Same hours. Same exact everything. One guy is told, listen, you do this horrible job for the whole year. At the end of the year, you get $20,000. Okay? The other person is told the exact same thing, and he says, at the end of the year, you get $20 million. Okay, now the one guy shows up, right? And is he quitting? The, the guy getting 20,000, he's probably quitting. The guy getting, getting 20 million, is he quitting? Nope. 
Let me get this right. You get no vacation. You work seven days a week, 12 hours a day. The person in the cubicle next to you brings sardines for lunch, brings their pet cat, right? He's got a lung dart going all day long. There's smoke all over the place. But, man, in 12 months, you're getting $25 million. Who cares? It's all good. Circumstances are the same. But because of your believed in future, you're like, I got this. I mean, I'll eat some sardines for crying out loud. This is not a problem. I've got this. Right? It's all good. Why? It's not the circumstances. Did you catch that? It's not the circumstances that make you feel great in that situation. It's your believed in future. Listen, 99% of us cannot describe or understand how this this massive airplane that, that weighs tons can fly and land and do all of this. If we had to get on the plane based on understanding of a plane, we would not get on a plane. But we have this believed in future that it's going to take off and it's going to fly and it's going to land. And it's because of that believed in future we're like, I don't understand this, I'm getting on the plane. That's the power of a believed in future. And see, when our believed in future contains hope, when it's built on hope, Man, it activates our brain in this incredible way. All right, try a little exercise with me, all right? Okay, everybody take a deep breath, okay? And some of you, I know, you're like, I don't really like going to church, and this is why I don't like going to church, because there's a guy on stage sometimes that has me do goofy things. I'm just a guest speaker, no big deal. You can handle it, all right? Okay, you can take a deep breath, take another deep breath. Good, all right, you guys are good at that, you're overachievers. So I want you to think maybe five, six years into the future, and think through a goal that you want to pursue, something that you want to see happen. Right? Think about the pathways to get there. Maybe it's a new and better job. Maybe a new relationship. Maybe it's a marriage. Maybe it's a healthier marriage. Maybe it's a new home, a baby. Maybe it's a healthier body. Maybe it's just the simple, simply the, the greatest vacation that you could ever imagine. Maybe it's reaching financial independence. Right, but, but what is that thing? It doesn't have to be a big thing, but what's that thing? Man, five years from now, if I, could, if I could achieve that, if I could have that, if I could do that, wow, would I be fulfilled and happy. Think about what that thing is, right? Now let's jump ahead five years. Okay, in your mind's eye, just jump about five years. Guess what? It's achieved. Your goal's achieved. I mean, you did it. You, you figured out a way to make that very thing reality. And again, in your mind's eye, you're there five years down the road. This goal is achieved. What do you see? Man, what do you, what do you feel? What about your life has, has changed, right? I mean, look around. What, what does your future look like now that you're in it? Who's with you? Who's celebrating with you? Why is there so much joy that you're experiencing? That's a really simple exercise, right? But, but here's what happened in your brain if you did that, okay? Your prefrontal cortex processed the request to take a deep breath, okay? Your whole brain gets involved in this thing. And once you started thinking about your goal, you began using your hippocampus. You guys didn't even know you had a hippocampus. You got one up there. To process past goals and experiences that related to that goal that you were thinking about. The Amy Glada stayed calm in the process 
and helped you keep a future orientation in the absence of a scarier, life-threatening vision of your future. And so the chemicals that your hypothalamic pituitary adrenal access might otherwise have been released to deal with this high energy, guess what? They remain dormant, and because of that, it allowed your hippocampus to do its job without interruption, helping you process memories, and then allowing your prefrontal cortex to get involved again to turn them into dreams for your future. And you know what that is? That's the neurobiology of hope. Is that incredible? I mean, God created this thing in the top of our heads that does stuff like that, and that all happened like in seconds. And that's what hope does. I would argue that our brain is operating optimally when it's doing the hope thing. But sometimes hope isn't what's dominant in our lives. Sometimes it's fear. And there's a ton of good things that fear does sometimes. Like if there's someone chasing you, run. Those are, I mean, there's, there's a good side of fear, right? But often fear kind of takes up residence in our life. And I think when that happens... Right? It, it punches a hole in our lives where hope runs out and despair moves in. Here's how Max Lucado describes the outcome of fear. He said, fear sucks the life out of the soul, curs, curls us into an embryonic state, and drains us dry of contentment. We become abandoned barns, rickety and tilting from the winds, a place where humanity used to eat, thrive, and find warmth. No longer. When fear shapes our lives, safety becomes our God. When safety becomes our God, we worship the risk-free life. Can the safety lover do anything great? Can the risk-averse accomplish noble deeds for God, for others? No. The fear-filled cannot love deeply. Love is risky. It cannot give to the poor. Benevolence has no guarantee of return. The fear-filled cannot dream wildly. What if their dreams sputter and fall from the sky? The worship of safety emasculates greatness. And I think what we're ultimately left with is despair. And it's, I believe it's at the root of the people's words, of the attitude that we see here in, in Malachi. They've connected their present reality to a believed-in bleak future. And their approach to God started to take on this transactional feel. They thought, listen, if we just do all of this religious stuff, and again, I think many of us, we can identify through seasons of our life, we do this, right? If we just do all this religious stuff, then we're going to build up this faith currency with, with which they could turn around and we can deposit that in this cosmic, cosmic vending machine known as God. And what he's going to do is disperse blessings to us by doing that. And we create kind of this transactional interaction with God that's rooted likely in despair. But of course, God doesn't work that way. He's not after our ritual. He's after us. He's after our heart. And so God presses the issue. We jump in at Matthew 3.13. He says, you have said harsh things against me, says the Lord. Yet you ask, what have we said against you? And they eventually go on to, to, to say that, God, you don't know what you're doing. 
they, they really say, we'll see in a little bit, that, that God, you're, you're unfaithful, right? God, you prefer wicked people over your very own and those that are doing right. And, and all of this, I think, was rooted in the fact that, man, we're not getting what we want from God. And their despair led them to really a self-centeredness. And self-centeredness is such a dangerous thing, right? It, it leads to individualism, where at some level we're thinking, man, others don't matter. I, I, I'm going to do it my way. I did it my way. Maybe agnosticism, I'm not sure that's the, the best word there, but it's this idea that God doesn't fully matter or God doesn't really matter. You know what? I'll handle my own stuff. It leads to narcissism, right, where I'm all that matters. And everything that runs through our mind is constantly, what's in it for me? What's in it for me? What's in it for me? And I think the basis of, of self-centeredness, especially for those that would claim to be followers of Jesus, is believing that, you know what, God's really not going to be faithful today and he's not going to be faithful in the end and maybe not even in between. And so I better take matters in my own hand. I better do what's right and best for me. And it's how future belief impacts the way we live each day. And so they're going off on God, right, which is, is pretty incredible that they're doing this. And, and God, though, shows his love. He doesn't obliterate them. He dialogues with them. And I think like a loving parent, he tries to, to guide them. He tries to point out the errors of their way and help them grow and, and live in a different way. But, but listen to their despair, okay? You said it's futile to serve God. What did we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? But now we call the arrogant blessed. Certainly the evildoers prosper, and even those who challenge God escape. Haven't we all been to that level of despair at different times in our life? I and mean, we probably use different words. Maybe they're a little more sanitized. But haven't we thought sometimes seasons in our life, days in our life, you're like, we're just like, God, you're, you're really not coming through for me. You're not doing a very good job. I mean, why did that employee get the promotion and not me? Why is it so hard to conceive and have a baby? Why won't our house sell? Why does our car keep breaking down? Why is my marriage failing? Why is my health support? A baseball fan is like, when will the Rockies ever be good? But that's a whole other thing, right? Now, here's the thing. I don't want you to hear, I don't want you to, to mishear what I'm saying. Man, lamenting before God, sharing your heart, being authentic, being real, being honest, you know what that is? That's beautiful. That's beautiful. And I would say it's necessary, and I would say it's God-honoring because somewhere in that, that doubt and in that messed up season of life, it reflects a belief that says, God, I really do believe that you can do something about this situation. But what we see here in Malachi, these were not God-honoring laments, but, but, but they were trying to manipulate God through what they were doing, like their mourning and pretending to be sad about their sin. All of it was just an attempt to manipulate God. And yet, we go on, and there's, there's another group, seemingly, 
And their response, even though they're in the exact same circumstances, seems to be very different. They seem to have more of an attitude like, hey, God is just and God does love us and God is fair and God has not abandoned us and and God's worthy of our adoration and he's worthy of our praise and and he's worthy of our love. Listen, it seems like there's a a sense where they have an appreciation for what's happened in the past and a hope for what's going on in the future And, and look at how it changed how they interacted. It said, then those who feared the Lord, guess what they did? They talked with each other and the Lord listened and heard. A scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name. And so here's God again. He's listening. He's engaging, right? I got your name in the book of life. He's he's reassuring And it's those who had a stance of hope. I believe they had this fear, this awe sense of God. And they responded to their current circumstances in such a different way by not being, in a sense, self-centered. But did you notice they started focusing on others? They actually started talking. Instead of just kind of going off on God, they started talking to each other, and we don't know exactly what they were talking about, but based on the context and everything, I've got to believe that they were talking about the faithfulness of God in the past and anticipation of the way God would be faithful in the future. And their hope was renewed through the testimony, through the stories of others about God's faithfulness. See, it's why we have to engage with other individuals that have a little life in them. Right? We all are kind of these ragamuffin people that, that have this shaky faith at times. We haven't arrived, but you know what we have? We have stories of the journey. Stories that involve doubt. Stories that are, are full of sorrow and pain and confusion. Yet in there, there's this thread of, of also of God's faithfulness, and that's what shines. Man, many years ago, I was doing this ministry in a prison um, and man, do I never want to go to prison. Let me just say that, all right? I would not do good there. Um, but there are these men, and they're singing, and they're worshiping God. And I got, because we were there a lot, I got to know some of them. And there's this one guy who was kind of the leader, and, and he had um, done a lot of crime, did some really bad stuff, became a follower of Jesus, man, just this beautiful man, loving, caring, a really good leader. And the Thursday or before we were there on that Sunday, he went before a judge, and he was going to hear what the, the, he potentially got out on parole, or he potentially would have to serve longer in, um, in prison. And I remember just the short version. He, he stands up, because they had this testimony time. He says, let me tell you, everyone. He said, this, the, the few, few days ago is when I found out what my future would look like. And he said, I can't tell you how much I have trusted Jesus in the last, you know, half of my life, the last five, six, seven years. I can't tell you how good he's been for me. He's going on and on and on. He said, but I went before that judge, and rather than getting paroled, he identified me as a habitual criminal. And because of that, I have an additional 20 years. At best, I'm here for another 12. And I'm sitting there like, oh, this is going to go so terrible. Right, Because he's going to say, God isn't just, and God isn't fair, and God doesn't have my back. And I'm just like, this is not going to go good. He's going to say, it was all a waste. And he stood up there, 
And you can imagine tears are rolling. And he said this. He said, listen, I want you to know that God had me yesterday, God's got me today, and God has me tomorrow. That's a story of hope, right? And I could look around in that room and guys uncertain about their own future and maybe they had this own shaky hope that that they were trying to stand on, but I can tell you at least in that moment for that day, his hope was big enough that they were standing on that too. And it changed the reality of their day. You see, it's not our circumstances that truly affect the way we live, but it's our believed-in future. See, ultimately, hope is only as valuable as that which we hope in. If we hope on things that get, get smoked, our status, our job, our, our career, our, our family even, even a lot of good things, any of that kind of stuff, man, it's, it's, our hope's only as good as that which we lean into, what we hope in. And so we've got to hope on something, into something that suffering, that death can't take away, something that's eternal, Continuing on Malachi, Lord Almighty says, they will be mine. In the day when I make up my treasured possessions, I will spare them just as in compassion a man spares his son and serves him. And you will again see the distinction between the righteousness and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. Listen, you are the crowning jewel of God's creation. You were created to be with him forever as a beloved son, as a beloved daughter. And continues on, he says, surely the day is coming. It'll burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And, and the day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. Nobody's got that leg tattoo, right? Yikes. Listen, I'm not unpacking everything as it relates to day of the Lord. I mean, that's Zach's job to do for you guys, all right? But I mean, there's a lot of varied views, but, but I think trustworthy scholars and theologians, they wrap it around, they agree that it's a time of refining, it's a time of justice, it's a time of making things right. The methodology, the timing, some of those things are up for debate. But again, let's, through the lens of hope, read this last portion of Malachi. But for... You who revere my name, the son of righteousness, will rise with healing in its rays. And you will go out and frolic like well-fed calves. Then you will trample on the wicked. They will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day that I act, says the Lord Almighty. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and the laws I give him at Horeb for all of Israel. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before the great and dreadful day that the, the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. And the part I want to look at as we look through this lens of hope is, is it says the sun is coming, right? S-U-N. And often Jesus is referred to not just as the S-O-N but also the S-U-N. And he's coming. He's coming as light, right? He's going to illuminate our foolish choices before we make them. He comes into the world. He brings sun. He's the light in the darkness of confusion and ignorance and skepticism. He's the sun. He's bringing beams of justice. He makes man right with man through grace, through humility, through patience, through love. And in the end, he'll make 
all the rights wrong, all the, the, all the people that have suffered will be made right and whole so that we don't have to carry the burden of indignation and revenge. Jesus brings great joy where there was sadness, right? I mean, I love the verse, man. We're going to be, it's like these little calves that have been cooped up, and all of a sudden, if you've been on a farm, you ever see it, they get out, man, they are the happiest creatures on the face of the earth as they're frolicking around. And some of you dudes, you're like, man, I don't want to be a frolicker. Too bad you're going to frolic, man. It's going to be awesome, and your wife's going to say, that dude is amazing, See, Jesus is our hope. He's our stance. The stance of hope is a stamp in Jesus, the past, the present, the future work. See, remembering, remembering, not just the past, but the future played such an important role in the faith of ancient Israel, right? It's remembering the past, those things go from memory to the future, hope. And I would sum it up this way. The message of Malachi is a call for us to remember that our fragile faith Our despair-driven doubt proves, guess what? We're not chosen as an object of God's mercy because of our virtue, but because of God's grace and love. Remember this. It's a message that points to Jesus. And maybe sometimes you think of the judgment and the fire, and can I frame that differently for you, maybe to consider a little bit? I mean, you think of, of, of fighting forest fires, right? And what do they do? They light a backfire along a break in the path of the advancing fire. And the idea is when this fire that's coming and consuming everything, when it hits that break, when it hits that line where it's already been burned, the fire goes out. It cannot continue to burn, right? Well, God judged our sins in Jesus, and in a sense, He's the backfire. He was burned so that we don't. He took that for us. And so how do we, how do we li- how take this stance of hope? I think it comes to, from remembering. And let me, let me give you three really quick things just to consider. You remember by building altars. We see that in the Bible. Some, some, you say, man, God did something amazing there. We build an altar. We build an altar. It can be stones. It can be all kinds of things. Most of my altars are sticky notes. That's it. This is one I have on my computer. This is the first ever picture that my two, now two-and-a-half-year-old granddaughter, Lorelai, drew me. It's a bunch of scribbles, but she said, that's Papa. And I'm like, Lila never looked better. But it's on my computer because I have this thing. The last couple of years, I said, you know what? I want to live the rest of my life in a way that benefits the church, that serves the church well, so that the church, capital C Church, is awesome for my grandkids. And this is a reminder of God's faithfulness and God's goodness that somehow in his love I have grandkids and I have this granddaughter. And so it's an altar, it's a marker on a sticky note on my computer and it reminds me of what's happened and it reminds me to look forward as well. See, here's the deal. Hope is not an emotion, it's a stance. It's something we can learn, it's something we have to practice to become a reality in our life. So build altars, share and hear stories. I already talked about that. You got to share your story. You got to hear stories. That's why you got to be connected with each other, life groups, wherever the case may be. Because what you're doing in that, you're always, if a person's having a great day or they're having a bad day, in those relationships, you're always pointing them to Jesus. They're pointing you to Jesus. And it's not about you. It's about Jesus. It's about Jesus. It's about Jesus. That's where your hope is built. That's, be, that's developing a stance of hope. And that's how you learn about hope. And then don't take yourself too seriously. 
Some of you are going to hate this, but listen, the gospel, it's a gospel reminder that it's all about grace. It's not about you. Don't take yourself too seriously. You're in a complete mess up most of the time. You barely know what you're doing, and that's beautiful because think about how much God loves you and what he can still do through you. Take the gospel seriously. Don't take yourself too seriously. Man, when I was a little kid, I was five years old, got my bike. I took to riding a bike like nothing. My dad takes me to this parking lot. I'm riding this bike as quickly as I possibly can. I'm going fast. And my dad's yelling something. He's screaming something. I'm going. I didn't hit the brakes. I hit the speed bump. I go over the handlebars of the bike. I land on my head. I scrape my face. I'm a total mess. My bike is all torn up. It's a complete mess, right? I had this beautiful thing, and I took it and I wrecked it, and I crashed it, and my dad picked me up, and he took me home, and my mom took care of me, and somehow in the back of my mind, I'd see my dad fix everything. I said, I don't know how. He's going to fix that thing. This was like on a Saturday afternoon. I go to bed. I'm banged up. Back in those days, you know, you don't take your kid to hospital. I probably had concussions, whatever. And I woke up the next morning, right? I go out about 11 a.m. I go into the garage. My bike is completely fixed. It's like brand new. It even went from yellow to my favorite color, green. My dad stayed up all night to make it fresh, to make it new. He took something that I absolutely messed up, and he made it beautiful. And I didn't know it at the time, but I know it now that that was a beautiful reflection of what God wants to do in my life, not just now, but in the future. That is the hope in which I stand on. It's that same hope that we can all stand on. Listen, imagine if you really believed that everything that sin has wrecked, everything that you've wrecked, Jesus came to fix. And if you believe that, then you can live with hope, a life-shaping stance. God, I pray for my friends here. You'd grow us all in our ability to, to hope, to live with hope, to be conveyors, conduits of hope to others. And God, that you would reshape our doubt and our hurts and move those in a, a direction that's honoring to you and honoring to your creation, those around us. I pray this in Jesus' name.